Hi, Dave. How are you? Good. Good. How are you? Good. Good. What's new? Oh. <laughs> in, in, in a mellow, mellow mushroom kind of mood today. I'm always I'm always a mellow mushroom. Yeah. Somebody gave me some uh, banana flavored pocky. Oh, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Japanese um, candy. Yeah. The but little you know, in sticks. Japan, in Japan, uh, banana is a popular candy flavor. Yeah. So these banana pocky have really made me a mellow mushroom. Chocolate banana or just straight up banana? It's hard to tell. Sort of banana, banana, banana. The only one I'm seeing on their website is chocolate banana. Well, these may be from Japan. Okay. But I don't, you know, who knows? Who knows? Japan domestic market. JDM, we say. Was the person who gave them to you from Japan or and like maybe had brought them back or visited Japan recently? That seems to be the, that's the suspicion. Yeah. Because we have lots of stores here where you can you can get them all. You don't have to go to Japan to get them. Yeah, but there are still things in Japan you can't get. I know. You can't get here. I Secret know. things. Special things. I know. I'm contemplating a trip to Japan. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never been. I, I uh, The closest I was was South Korea. It's, yeah, it's not that close. I mean, it's not walkable. I mean, it's closer than Austin. South Korea to Japan flight. Let's see how long that is. How, do you want to? Do you want to guess how far that is? From South Korea to Japan. Yeah. How long? How long the flight time would be on a, dire, a direct flight? If we're going from Tokyo to Seoul. Don't look three this, hours. Okay, you're wrong. Oh. It's one Four. hour. One hour and oh. fifty-seven minutes. Oh, that close. That's like real close. Well, that is pretty close. Yep. Yep. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that I was so, um, I was so off. I think your, your knowledge of, uh, geography is impressive by anyone's standards, but I'm, I'm surprised you didn't get this right. Well, you know, it's funny The you learn geography best when you travel. Yeah. And I've never been to Asia. And so, I mean, I have a sense of the geography there from studying, but I don't have that intimate mm-hmm. feeling of like, of, uh, of knowing just exactly where, you know, what the map represents. Right. Sure. Yeah. And it's cheap. Apparently it's very, this is very cheap. Like a hundred, 150, 139 bucks, 175 bucks. Whoa. Yeah. It's cheap. People, people from, do it from Tokyo to Seoul. Not from you know here. That is a brutal. Is a was a brutal flight. This is the thing that I think is different. That as an adult, the kind of choices you make, as as far as like how you how you get around and how you stay when it's your choice. When I visited, I went with my um, my wife, my mother in law, and my brother in law, and her uh, my wife's mom was in charge of all of the travel arrangements and you know, you're going as a group, you're going as a family, the, the matriarch who is from South Korea and been back many, many times. You would trust 
that they would uh, they would handle the situation and, and do the do the right thing. But the seats that she got us were the worst possible seats. Oh, oh my see. god, it was so bad. They were, I mean, it, beyond budget seats, and it just it just sucked. The whole flight, sixteen hour plus. I think we were traveling for twenty one hours total. The sixteen hour flight. Oh, it just sucked, and the the seats couldn't lean back. Or oh my god, it was horrible. Horrible. That's terrible. That's terrible. I, I just oh damn. I feel your pain i do it was bad dude it was bad i feel that pain i i'm suffering with you suffering right along with it you know never ask a local never like what ask hotel to stay in or something somebody somebody tweeted me today they were like hey uh some somebody tweeted out into the world like hey where do bands where do cool bands stay for cheap in seattle and somebody was like let's ask john roderick i was like what no i stay at my house where bands stay when they come to town. I mean, I know where bands stay other towns. Yeah. Why would I do that here? I wouldn't know that here. But the problem with locals is they always think that they should have an answer to something like that. So they go, oh, sure. Sure. Uh, you need to, st- you know, you need to go like, and it's like, they're wrong. They're always wrong. They're, they do not have the best information, local people. You wouldn't think. You wouldn't think that's true. They're right there. They're the local people. Yeah, but they don't know anything. No, they don't. They don't because they don't want to know. They're, who's staying? Who's staying in a hotel in the town you live in? Almost no. No one ever. No, no. In fact, you don't even know re- really what to do in your town. <laughs> I mean, when people come to town, I'm like, uh, the aquarium, uh, the zoo, the aquarium. I mean, we could drive around and I could show you all the places I used to live. Like, I don't know. What do you do? And what do you do anywhere? One of my first visits to San Francisco, a buddy of mine who, um, who'd been living there for de- at least a decade. Uh, he said, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a personal tour of San Francisco. And he, he said, I'm going to drive you all around to all the different areas. I'm going to explain what they are and tell you, you know, like what, what kind of folks live in the different areas and what kind of restaurants are in the different areas, what there is to see and do in them. And he spent probably like, you know, it was, it was late at night, so there wasn't traffic and it was great. I got like this personalized tour of like, it really helped because a place like San Francisco, there's so many different areas and they're so different from one another that he really gave me a tour. It was like really eye opening, and it helped me subsequently on every single trip because when people would would mention an area i i sort of kind of knew what that was because every area has its own little name and very pretentious i mean first of all i love hearing you say the word tour over and over tour it's so good how how do you say it well tour tour yeah not tour dash war (laughs) well i'm from philly we say things like that down there. I know it's great. It's tour, a great water route route. Tour, tour. It's a great yeah. accent. I just love hearing you say it. But that is the one thing I'm good at in Seattle is giving a tour, 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 uh, of the city. I'll drive you all around. I'll show you everything. I'll tell you every little last bit of everything. But it's just not. It's and some people who come to town really want that. But you know, a lot of times particularly if they've got like kids in tow, kids don't want to, 
you know, no, don't that's, that's drive, poison uh, for a kid. <laughs> drive by the old steam plant and hear about how <laughs> Seattle makes electricity. Right. Like to me, that's interesting. Like, yeah, let's no, go there first. Of course it's interesting. It should be interesting <laughs> to everybody, but you know, it's like, Hey, we're in town for an, for a couple hours. What should we do? Oh, let me go tell you about all the different places where the, where the roads are actually bridges over culverts, but you can't see it. It's I don't know if, if if it's a sign for you as it is for me, but I know things are turning south fast. If my kid says, dad, can I have your phone? Mm. Then, you know, this is going to be a rough, rough dinner. If we're there for three minutes, dad, do you have any games on your phone? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I don't let her, she doesn't even know that that's possible. Oh, come How have you hidden that? She's so smart. Come on. She knows. Oh, she knows that there are games on the phone. She doesn't know that it's possible to ask for my phone at a dinner table. Because why? She asked once and you said no. Don't you it ever was, just want peace from, from them for just a second? Just a it was, second. It was never offered to her as an option. Um, I, we, yeah, I do. But, you know, I'm, I, I from a young age i assumed because when i was a kid right just like all everybody our age you sat at the dinner table with the and listened to the adults talk until you just fell asleep in your chair right and you know kids act like it's the 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 worst thing that ever happened to them but you know it's how (laughs) i learned politics it's how i learned to talk to grown-ups it's how i learned it's how i learned the subtle ins and outs of adult conversation as they tried to talk about stuff around me without me knowing what it was. Right. And it's just like, and I'm sitting there pretending to be asleep, but like trying to figure out what they're talking about. And all that is the kind of mind training that I think is part of growing up and part of being an adult. And, and it's, and it's something that's been true for thousands of years. The kids didn't have anything to do but sit and listen to the adults talk. And so when she was little, I just, and she first started um, being in restaurants and, and and I'm not talking about like as an infant, but like when she could sit up and, and be at the table, um, like I'd let her have crayons, but anything else, any kind of like zone out and, 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 and even in places where, there are like it's a restaurant and there's a kids play area i'll let her go play in it before dinner right but then after dinner when she's like can i go and she wants to go play in the thing yeah i'm like no sit with us and she of course she acts like it's torture just like i did but how else are you going to learn the art of conversation and how else are you going to learn how things are made and what adults are talking about and all that stuff you know and I really feel like what what happens when you if you if you grow up and you're not listening to grown ups, then you you still experience that thing that all eighteen year olds experience or eighteen to twenty five year olds where they're like, Okay, we got this, we know everything there is to know and we're taking over the world now and adults need to step off because here we come. <laughs> it's like, well, no, you don't know anything. But particularly you don't know anything if you spent your life you know, with your headphones on. Right. Sure. Like, how could you possibly know anything? Um, it just feels like, you know, something that's what's amazing about being 18 or 25. Like your brain is all full of 
Hey, you think you know everything. You got well, everything the, figured the, out. The chemicals are telling you you know everything, but you haven't been listening at all. And being, you know, it's not like I'm forcing her to listen. I don't sit sit there and stare at her and say, "What am I saying now? What am I saying now?" I like I don't want her to. I I sometimes have to say literally. I've never said children should be seen and not heard. I've never actually said that, although I've like you've thought it right. That's basically what I'm practicing. I'm mm-hmm. practicing some Victorian child rearing technique. But I'm I often have adult people at the table, you know, kind of go, "Well, we shouldn't talk about this around the." And I'm like, no, talk about it around the kid. Like, if you can't figure out a way to talk about this around a child without, like, if you can't figure out a way to confuse the child and communicate to the adults, then you need to spend more time in conversation, too. Right. Like, yes, confuse the child. It's the point of this exercise. Say words the child doesn't understand. Put phrase things metaphorically so that the child doesn't sure what's happening. The adults all know what you're saying. Uh-huh. And then later, four days later, the child will, from the back seat, say, what does deflower mean? <laughs> right. It'll just pop out like you, like the next day. Yeah. And then you have that ex- incredible experience as a parent of trying to explain metaphorically what a what a word means in a way that, you know, you're not trying to at, at dinner, you are trying to confuse them. But later when the, when your kid asks you, now you're trying to explain without overcomplicating their, their worldview, but you do want them to, you know, the point of it is for them to learn. I don't know. All of that, it seems really fun to me. And, um, and so no, she on car rides or at dinner tables or really any time it's never it's never an option for her to have to have any electronic device and zone out on it in public or otherwise right uh and she's never since it's never been part of her life she just has no questions about it i think she looks over and sees other kids looking at with their headphones on at the dinner table and it just looks it just looks as foreign to her as it does when you know, it just seems like another culture. So she doesn't, she's, she started to, um, watch Mr. Rogers and it's so wonderful to see another, to see how Fred Rogers translates to a generation of kids that have come along 40 years later. And he's just, he translates so directly Cause she's kind of cynical about entertainment. She's like, man, that's not a good movie or man, I don't like that. Yeah. But Fred Rogers, she's just like, who is this amazing man? Right. And I'm like, I know, right. It's weird. Cause he just community. He's just talking directly to her. We would like to say thanks to away. That's right. Away. The folks that make the really awesome luggage. Their focus and inspiration is movement times of transition, exploration and surprise. They create special objects that are at home on the road, that carry you forward, that make your trip easier, and in a small way, maybe even make your life a bit better. This uh, company is pretty cool. The history of it's kind of cool. It was started by two friends from New York. They were in JFK. They had dead phones, delayed flights, and they were sitting there thinking, we can't charge our phones anywhere. This is ridiculous. What if our luggage could charge our phones? What if 
our carry-on had a battery in it that could charge our stuff. That was the birth of the away carry-on. And that's what they do. They, they design these things to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way that people travel today. And they went and asked thousands of people, how do you pack? Why are you traveling? What's the worst thing about your luggage? What's the best thing about your luggage? And then they designed a new bag that solved a few old problems like sticky wheels and a few new ones like dead cell phones, right? That is the birth of these great carry-ons. I use this carry-on every single time that I travel pretty much anywhere, but they have more than just the basic sized carry-on. They've got uh, the bigger carry-on, they've got a medium, and they've got a large for extended stays. Uh, They're making all kinds of shapes and sizes, all kinds of colors. They're made with uh, premium German polycarbonate, which is super strong, impact resistant, and it's incredibly lightweight. You know, if you've ever been like suitcase or carry-on shopping and you pick up the empty carry-on and you're like, this thing's heavy, that you've made a mistake. You need to to look to think again about what you're about to buy. Uh, you want something that's going to be light so that you can make it heavy with your own stuff. The interior has a patent pending compression system, which I really like. It lets you put a ton of stuff in there and then it compresses it down. They've got four 360 degree spinner wheels. That's one of my favorite things. I, I see that as a must with any kind of bag, suitcase, carry-on, doesn't matter. Built-in TSA-approved combination lock right in the top of the bag so you don't have another thing to worry about. Oh, where's the lock? Where'd I put it? What's the combo? No more of that. And they've got a removable washable laundry bag that keeps dirty clothes separate from the clean. Again, a must. So both sizes of the carry-on can charge all cell phones, tablets, e-readers, anything powered by a USB cord. And a single charge of the carry-on will charge your iPhone five times. Pretty awesome. But here's the thing. You're ordering something over the internet and you say to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to like this. How do I know? You've got to try. I want to try it. That's what they let you do. A hundred day trial. Live with it. Travel with it. Use this thing. And if at any point in those hundred days you decide it's not for you, you will get a full refund. No questions asked. They have free shipping on any away order within the lower 48 states. Their carry-on sizes are compliant with all major U.S. airlines. And, uh, and they even have a retail store in New York City. They're pretty cool. And now we have a, a special uh, situation for, for our listeners here. Uh, $20 off a suitcase. If you go to awaytravel.com slash roadwork, awaytravel.com slash roadwork, the promo code to use is roadwork roadwork and you'll get 20 bucks off a suitcase now i just went with the regular like the dark gray one but i've been using that thing non-stop every time that i travel whether it's like a weekend trip with my family or whether i'm flying somewhere i love this thing i think you're gonna love it too and i'm i'm really glad to tell you guys about it 20 bucks off a suitcase at awaytravel.com slash roadwork promo code is roadwork but yeah it's not like she can go watch as many mr rogers as she wants either so you don't, don't you don't like give her the remote and let her watch what she wants? No. 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 You like pick it out and it's like, okay, what what do you want to watch? Okay, well you can watch one episode of that, I'll put it on for you. And then she watches it and then what does she do after that? She's done. She's done and then what goes to like color or dance or something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Strangely. Well, you know, I mean I have my daughter's the same age, so I yeah, yeah, goes, I mean, she just knows, she knows that 
there are things that she does not understand that whining will not produce for her. Right. Like there are lots of things that she still continues to think that, that if she applies the appropriate amount of, of English to her, if she puts backspin just right on a whine that she will get what she wants mm. because it does work, right? She can, she can whine and some adult will put an ice cream cone in her hand. It's happened enough times. <laughs> right. That she, she knows it's possible. <laughs> yeah. That, so that when she does it to me and I'm like, you know, whining never gets you anything. She kind of cocks an eyebrow and is like, like, oh, like, really? kind of does. You don't know how many ice cream cones I've gotten. And, but she, then she remembers like, oh, it just doesn't work with daddy. But no one has ever let her watch two episodes of a TV show because she whined about it. Right. And so she just knows it's like, okay, you get it. You know, now's your time to watch Mr. Rogers. And she's like, awesome. And then she does it and then, and then it's over. But she and I will sit sometimes and watch like Fred Astaire and we'll cycle through 20 YouTube videos that are all, you know, five to 10 minutes long of people dancing or people, um, doing cool stunts or stuff like that. I mean, cause I like that stuff and I, I don't show her cool stunts that she that she can't f- figure out what the what the hell all all else is going on, you know, like yeah. like people that are people that are doing dangerous shit that involves a whole lot of of uh, decision making up the ladder, but like Gene Kelly, I think Gene Kelly is just like Fred Rogers. I think anybody that watches Gene Kelly immediately understands or Savion. Glover, the the dancer, um, or just or all that old crazy vaudeville stuff. Like Shirley Temple communicates immediately to anybody. Um, anybody that's tap dancing, basically, I think tap is like really wonderful. And and she'll you know she'll she'll hang with me through through ten little YouTube videos of people tap dancing. Yeah, I think anything with Gene Kelly, for some reason, Gene Kelly just translates well, regardless of the time period. And if you start with like singing in the rain, mm-hmm. uh, which is what I started my kids with. It's funny that you mentioned this because just last week we were going through these. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, both my kids really like it, but my son even likes it even more. Yeah. And it's so cool because like I remember watching this when I was a kid. And there's so many things that don't hold up, you know, so many things that for whatever reason, you know, they just don't work today. They don't make sense today. They're not funny the way they were. And this, this kind of stuff is still just brilliant. It's still brilliant. It's singing and it's dancing and it's like, it's pure, pure goodness. Well, and that thing that, I mean, when we were growing up and people would talk about, and I don't know, there's, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to the show that are like, really? People sat and talked about that at the dinner table? But, you know, it was the difference between Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and their style was something, was just like, I get, it's not, it, it's not comparable to like Biggie versus Tupac. Right. But, but they were the they were the two exemplars of male dance in film in the mid 
part of the 20th century, and they were very different from one another, and people had a preference. It was Beatles versus Stones. Oh, yeah. And um, and watching them, you know, Fred Astaire is so elegant and so light on his feet, I guess. I mean, just I'm just using terms that I heard as a kid. Right. But it's it, it really shows in his in his style. He's just like light and um and patrician and kind of just a, a like very he's very stylish. And then Gene Kelly is so kinetic, and mm-hmm. his body his body just communicates all this strength and confidence and and. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm team Gene. Yeah. In, in, in when I when I look at the two of them together, his his dancing just um, just animates me. And I can see, I mean, so so much of our culture was uh, was other people's culture when we were growing up, yours and mine, like what was on TV and TV was a very limited beam, but it was, it was basically the, the history of everything on TV all the time. If you turned on the TV, it could just as easily be something from the thirties as something from the sixties. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when you're just a couple years older than me, but I mean, I remember turning the TV on and the shows that I would be watching as a kid, Gilligan's Island, you know, Mr. Ed, not, not including the cartoons and stuff, Gomer Pyle, um, Hogan's Heroes. But the, and then the, the late movie on TV might be a Bob Hope movie, <clears throat> sure. you know, like, um, but you know, like those, those shows were not, those shows were not from the early mid seventies. They were much, much older than that. Oh no, no, you're right. Yeah. We'll leave it to Beaver. I mean, right. That was right. I grew TV. up watching that. Dennis the and Menace. That, that was uh, And the cartoons, were, forget the cartoons, we were watching cartoons from the 40s. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I I found there's uh there's a couple of websites on the internet, not YouTube. Uh and I'm forgetting the ones offhand, you just have to google it, but whenever I want to show my kids like, "Dad, what did you watch when you were my age?" I'm like, "All right, well, let's find the Bugs Bunny cartoons." And you know, the Tom and Jerry cartoons, the one I just showed them the one where, um, I forget the name of it, but every, everybody who's even remotely close to our age will know immediately. It's the one where uh, Jerry is living inside the piano and Tom is uh, performing a, a a piano concerto and, and he's playing it and, and there's a little war going on between the two of them. It's just a brilliant cartoon. It's just completely fun. And it there's so much stuff from my childhood that when I show my kids, they're like, oh, that's... That's kind of boring, Dad. This was captivating to them, and they loved it, and they loved it the same way that that I loved it. You know, when I was a kid. Yeah, well, uh, there is stuff that's eternal, and I I remember some at some point in the eighties, t- turning on, and you know, what am I in the nineteen eighties? I'm still a teenager, right? But turning on the cartoons that were new, eighties new, right? And finding them even even still on the cusp of childhood, <laughs> um, being like bad, like pandering, the the and and it's part of what it's part of the scrappy do phenomenon. Oh, God. That's, 
that's somewhere <laughs> along the line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> someone up the, you know, someone in entertainment felt like, well, we just need to, we need to put, um, we need to put a, like infantile child characters into everything in order to appeal to children. And, and it was part of the, uh, part of somebody's theory of childhood that all these kids who had been forced to sit at the dinner table and listen to their parents talk about politics and, and how they were going to pay the bills. Um, what they really wanted was a, a character on the screen that they could empathize with mm-hmm. who was a child who had childlike needs. And so all of a sudden we had these characters start popping up in things that were an adult's idea of what a child how a child's mind worked and I it's scrappy do for, for people who don't know is like the Scooby doo show was a perfect television show. It was, um, every episode was a mystery. Mm-hmm. There was some kind of ghost or ghoul and the, and the squad went, you know, had some encounter with it and they were like, we're going to get to the bottom of this mystery because the ghoul was trying to run some little old lady out of, her big house on the hill. And, uh, and then Scooby and, and uh, Shaggy got scared mm-hmm. and went, <laughs> and they ran and they knocked something over and it was revealed that the ghoul was actually the property developer. <laughs> yeah. And the property developer said, if it wasn't for you darn kids, I would have gotten away with it. And then everybody laughs and it's over. But all of a sudden at some point, Scrappy Doo, who is a young Scooby dog, appears, and Scrappy is just a shitty little person. Mm-hmm. He just sucks. The worst. And he now Scrappy Doo is in every episode, and he's playing a major role in every episode. Yeah, and he's he just garbages it up, and and it's obvious that it's somebody's idea of like this is what kids want. Right. This will like, no. bring in this will bring in the whole next generation of of viewers if we have yeah. this. Yeah, here it is. Our, you know, we're really we're upping we're it's not just like we're modernizing it. It's not like they added it's not like they added Davy Jones. No, it was insulting. Yeah, it's like no, we're going to add a like a little kid proxy. And then you saw it a lot in the 70s. It was when Chachi arrived uh, in uh, happy days, in happy days, and then uh, what, there were a lot of examples of it, and and, it, and you know as soon as Chachi arrived in Happy Days, its show turned to garbage. And then in the eighties, there were television shows that were designed around the precocious little kid, like Silver Spoons with Ricky Schroeder, yeah, and um. I mean, a whole bunch of shows. I mean, Facts of Life was teenagers, but what was the one? Different Strokes. Uh, different Strokes, yeah, right? I knew you were gonna. Um, and you know, Different Strokes was a great TV show because the the star of the show was extremely charismatic and funny. But you know, in the seventies, those shows that had kids, it was about the parents and the family dynamic, and the kids were um, the stars, but they were. But it was always in a in a context of like how families worked, 
but by the eighties, it was, it was starting to be like kids say the darndest things. <laughs> and when you think about Garfield, the comic strip, we yeah. don't think about Garfield as being like anymore. We just think of it as being corny and lame, but Garfield was actually pretty sharp in the early days. And Garfield introduced the character of Nermal. Oh, yeah, I remember Nermal, yes. <laughs> the world's cutest kitten. And it was really a, a very sarcastic, uh, like, editorial of this tendency. All of, you know, Garfield it was a very popular strip at the time. And then all of a sudden, here comes Nermal. And... And it's really like laid right out on the table like, oh, here's Nermal, the world's cutest kitten. And Garfield's like, seriously, are we really doing this? And Nermal's like, shut up, fat man. And then turns around and gives everybody the big, the big eyes. And it was, a, it was a super trenchant commentary on pop culture uh, that <laughs> you wouldn't now think we, you were going to get from, from Garfield. But then some point in the 80s, the, the Saturday morning cartoons – turned into like Muppet babies. Right. Like what the fuck is a Muppet baby? Muppets are already babies. You don't need Muppet babies. <laughs> and, and all they were was like, Gaga. And, 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 and it became, I'm telling you, it was insulting. So insulting. And then everything designed for kids went that direction. And, and I don't think that it's just, um, like naked capitalism at work. I really do think that starting in the 60s and especially in the 70s, hardcore in the 70s, there was a lot of work being done on child psychology and mm -hmm. what children want, what children need, what they need. And the 80s started to pay off because all those people, it was like the children's television workshop was a result of people trying to get, trying to apply child psychology to television, and they did a spectacular job. But what they concluded in 1968 was children, you know, you can talk to them about real things. They can, they have the attention span to sit and watch a thing for a while, but then you need to move on. And you can, you know, you can make learning fun. Pretty, pretty universal, not, not controversial ideas. But by the 80s, there was this, and, and, I, and I, I strongly believe it followed people in universities theorizing about how children's minds work. There became this, this fad, intellectual fad, of insisting that what kids wanted was to identify with a character. On screen, and so that character needed to. If you're appealing to four-year-olds, the character needs to be four. It's the whole idea behind Elmo. Elmo, the you know the absolute demon agent of destruction. Elmo, <laughs> demon child, the Damien of all children's <laughs> entertainment. Yeah, and and so and 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 people don't think enough about how universities produce theories of the world 
And those theories are promulgated out from universities as students go out into the world and get jobs and become the people who are doing things. And they're applying what they learned. And within a university context, you can say anything and call it a theory. You know, you can say the voice of Dan Benjamin Mm -hmm. creates a feeling of security and contentment in people. And therefore the voice of Dan Benjamin is a thing that we should pipe into every household. (laughs) That's, that's my theory. And I can prove it by, by this double blind study where I put 25 people in a room and they listened to Dan Benjamin and 25 people in a room and they didn't listen to Dan Benjamin. And then at the end I served them chocolate cake and the Dan Benjamin control or the Dan Benjamin group (laughs) ate twice the chocolate cake that the other group did. Therefore, and so it's, you know, it's fun. That's what being in college is all about. And that's what being an intellectual is about and a theorist and a scientist. And I don't mean like a scientist, like, uh, like somebody that's trying to detect positrons. I mean, a social scientist, a psychologist, a sociologist, these ologies that are sciences, and so, but then, but then you raise a group of kids up in that, in that world. And then they're like, I have a theory. I think kids only respond to animated characters that are their same age. And now I got hired at, at, uh, Hanna-Barbera or whatever. And then pretty soon that's what's being made. And it's being justified on the basis of an appeal to a theoretical framework rather than one that is tested by time rather than one that's demonstrable or even one that is just logical that because it's because it sounds like it's coming from authorities. It's an appeal to if you're appealing to a, a paper, a PhD finding a, the conclusions of these eminent university child psychologists, it's very hard for somebody else to say, somebody else at the same company, particularly somebody older to say, really, that doesn't sound very fun though. Is that fun? Like, isn't it fun, more fun to watch like Jerry really screw up Tom's piano recital. (laughs) Right. Even though there is some like bonking and crashing and like what we would call violence, like it's pretty fun. It's pretty like you really zoom in on it and you can put a whole bunch of lessons in there, but like, this whole thing of like babies talking to you and and repeating everything five times the way Dora does, where she's like, <sighs> so do bad. you want to go to the mountain and then stares at you? It's like, that's somebody's theory. Okay. Let me, let me ask you, that's a, a wonderful point to make. <clears throat> when, when characters on TV look out at the audience at us, and speak to us and ask a question. Do you want to go to the mountain with me or whatever? Did you ever, was there a point in time where you would respond to the TV as a child, where you would look at the TV and the character on TV and say, yes, or no. Like, did you ever do that? Because well, that, go ahead. I, I, I never did that. Even at the earliest age, and I've asked my parents if I ever did that at very early ages, they said I did not do that. My kids do not and have not ever done that. 
And I don't know if it's because I, I think I'd be giving myself too much credit by saying, well, I, I knew it wasn't a real person and that they weren't really there. But I feel like I must have had some sense of that, that like the people on TV weren't speaking to me. And I'm always, I, I, I've always been troubled by that. Like, especially with something like Dora, where they're like, it will ask you a question looking at you and then wait for the answer to come in. And I think there's probably a lot of people who are kids, especially maybe not that many adults who are replying to that. Yes. But I haven't seen it firsthand. And I'm wondering, is that, is it normal to do that? Is that, or is that just a theory that somebody thinks isn't somehow going to engage the child more? It's absolutely just a theory. And it's a theory that, that, uh, enough people, you know, it, it's a theory that had a fashion because people on television who were talking to kids it, when I was a kid didn't do that. They, there was interaction with mm-hmm. the audience like, okay, hey, come with us. Let's go see how to make milk on a farm. Right. And I think probably, um, and I would have to ask my mom, but I'm, I'm sure that I was interacting with the TV when I was little, like, okay, or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether I was actively talking to them, but they weren't waiting for me to reply because they didn't, because they weren't asking a question and, and, uh, and the, <laughs> the, I guess the fundamental idea is based around a theory of does a two-year-old or a three-year-old want to feel like their will is being um, valued? Do they? Does a three-year-old want to feel like their needs are being taken into consideration by adults? And again, it's a theory. You can test kids all day. You can test them this way to prove your theory. You can test them that way to prove the opposite theory. Right. And I mean, I have a friend right now who is like right now we have a theory of the world that young women are raised in a patriarchal society to feel disempowered. And that creates problems down the road when everybody's a grown up and and women don't feel like that that, that they are enculturated from a from a tiny, tiny age to be submissive subservient to not stand up for themselves. And so right now there's a theory of early childhood development that's trying to correct for this. And the theory is that, um, and and the theory is being practiced a thousand different ways. And I have a friend who reports that they are, I mean, they're very progressive and they're raising their daughter with an education system that, includes um what is it called it's called uh some kind of like there's some philosophy within it and it has a name like body autonomy or something like that where uh, the father a friend of mine uh wants affirmative consent from his three-year-old to touch her and so he reported 
kind of in that way that fathers do when they're standing there talking to their friend, but they know that they're being overheard uh, right, sure. by their wife. Right. He's like, yeah, it was really funny. The other day I was in a parking lot of a store and I wanted to get my daughter into her car seat and she didn't want to go. And so I said, can I pick you up, sweetie? And she said, no, bad touch. <laughs> and so oh I was standing God. in the parking lot and we had places to go and it was raining and she didn't want to get into the car and was screaming bad touch at me and everyone was looking at me. And so I couldn't do anything and we just had to stand there and I had to negotiate with her until I could get her into the car. Ha ha ha. But that's what we have to do in order to raise a generation of strong women, isn't it? Lol. With and in his and he's got panic in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And he and rightfully so, because he's now raising his kid according to a theory of childhood development that is meant to be a form of social engineering to correct a problem that we have a theory about where that problem originates. And there are a hundred other theories too about it, but this is the one that they're going with. And there's a competing theory that says a child wants to feel like their parents are in charge. Right. A child only, you know, a child only feels secure if they feel like the grownups around them know what they're doing. And so if the grownups feel like they don't know what they're doing, and in particular, if the grownups are letting the child decide what is happening, then the child is far from feeling empowered, going to feel completely unmoored like terrified because the child doesn't know anything. The child doesn't even know where we're going. And the father isn't, isn't able to, to provide the, the security of like, here's what's going to happen next. You're going to get into your child seat and I'm going to lift you into the child seat because you can't even climb up there yourself. And I'm not going to ask your permission because it doesn't matter what you think because we're going to mama's now or we're going to the doctor now, you know, like your opinion in these matters isn't going to change what we do. Like I'll listen to your opinion and then I'll explain why we're going to do something else because I, because I know what we need to do. We need to, you need to be in bed at eight. You need to eat dinner at six. We need to go to the doctor. School starts at this time. Like those are things that we're going to make those choices for you. Now that's the type of thing that sounds pretty logical to me. But if you're operating on in a world where you're, we have theories that supersede just what seems like sane and what people have done for thousands of years. And the theory, because the theory is meant to correct problems. Yes, we've done that for thousands of years, but what we've produced is this patriarchal society. So we're going to change that and we're going to change it by virtue of, we're going to inflict our new, uh, like an understanding that we've had for 11 and a half hours or, or a theory we've had for 11 and a half hours that now what we're doing is giving three-year-olds autonomy and that's going to, and, and so that means 25 years from now, there isn't going to be a rape culture. And it's like, wow, you're really, you're really playing chess with some little people's lives here. Uh, and you don't know what the outcome is. There's no, your theory can't be tested. That cannot possibly be tested. You can only have just said it out loud in a college, but enough people get 
on board and you point to enough papers and you, and then pretty soon it's a school. So there are plenty of people who say that giving a kid a phone or an iPad at the dinner table in a restaurant is healthy and constructive because they're playing constructive games or you're, you are honoring their autonomy or adult, you know, they shouldn't have to be forced to live in an adult world because for a thousand reasons, I mean, I could sit and I could sit and come up with 50 theories right now about it. Um, but it all just feels like balderdash and it does for, to me definitely feel like we're living in a, in a world now that's a product of a lot more theory than practice and what doesn't happen generally is when a theory gets put into practice and then proves to be false it proves that it proves to be wrong wrong-headed no, none of the early uh like advocates of that theory none of the vocal proponents of that theory to ever take responsibility for the theory having failed. They're just on to the next thing. Right. New theory, better theory, new theory, better theory. And so we live in the wreckage of hundreds of theories of not just childhood development, but social, uh, how, how society works. I mean, the idea that we would go down into the lower East side of Manhattan and clean up these slums by tearing them down and building giant housing projects where everyone was going to leave and live in sanitary conditions. Right. And so what you do is you have these planned communities, you tear down blocks and blocks of, of, uh, old, you know, walk up apartment buildings that now each studio in there rents for $4,000 a month tear down blocks and blocks of those and build these giant brick towers with these blown out parks on down below that kind of just the wind just blows trash through them. And there, those places aren't maintained and pretty <laughs> such, soon such a depressing image. Yeah. Pretty soon they turn into <laughs> dangerous slums themselves. And then we're like, Oh boy, that was, that experiment didn't work, but Robert Moses is already dead and it's all his fault. So now we're going to start tearing those down and we're going to build a new thing, a new theory of how people want to live. And it's like, I don't know, man, if we had those old buildings there still, there'd be a lot of people living down there and they'd be all, you know, they'd be fixing them up just like they're doing the ones around them. So, but nobody wants to look back and say like public housing was my fault or public housing, public housing is a, uh, is a nice way of looking at this contemporary theory and we have to we have to look at how the public housing thing was applied and not just say oh we've learned all the lessons from that we need to learn it's like well but i mean the new thing that you're throwing out there you don't think there are lessons to be learned from public housing because it's a different game you're playing over here but there are there are a lot of lessons just in terms of hubris just in terms of the the idea that you you group of of uh, of theorists, university theorists, 
believe that you can alter human culture so dramatically in such a short amount of time with the application of your of some simple prescriptions and and we are i mean we are living in in a time when the like the dried up carapaces of so many of those ideas are just like they're we're ankle deep in them and we don't recognize that we don't recognize that it's not that we're standing around in the natural disintegration of old institutions that are being swept away by our new concepts we're standing in the ashes of a bunch of shit that was thought up in 1960 and only lasted 25 years or 40 years and then it all fucking came apart because it was never any, it was never what people wanted it was always somebody at at some Nickelodeon version of the children's television workshop telling us that, that the, that, you know, that what kids wanted was poop jokes (laughs) in there, you know, that it was no good to have the roadrunner constantly by, uh, by his, um, benign neglect causing the coyotes schemes to, to blow the coyote up. I mean, the coyote dies every, every time, but somehow is reanimated. It's a roadrunner is a zombie cartoon, but we don't want to see that. We don't want to see that violence, but we do think now it's okay to do poo poo pee pee in every form of child's children's entertainment. Every kid's movie that comes out is just like, (laughs) he farted. Can you imagine a Bugs Bunny cartoon like lowering itself no to a fart no joke? No way. A fucking fart joke. And yet you cannot turn on a, a, a kid's TV or kid's movie unless it's done by Pixar, who are too smart for that, without getting fucking farts. And it isn't just, you know, I just, I don't think it's decline. I think it's a product of someone having a big idea. And, you know, I'm not against big ideas. I'm fucking full of them. But this, this idea we have, this, this, this hubris we have in America where, you get a good idea, you you check it against a couple of your other suspicions. Like, does this make sense of that? Does this make sense of that? Does, you know, Noam Chomsky said a thing. Does that check out? Yeah, does it? Because it feels right to me. And so I'm going to start agitating. I'm going to do everything I can to, to get in somewhere and fucking apply this to the, to the universe. And it's like, wow, I mean, yeah, but does it check out, like get a little bit further outside? Does it check out with what people are doing? Does it check out with what, you know, like what, does it check out with Sesame Street? Does it even measure up? Are you doing something that's better than Sesame Street or worse? Are you doing something that's better than public housing or worse? 
we would like to say thank you very much to Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. So check this out. This is a collaboration between four close friends. Warby Parker, it was created as an alternative to the overpriced and, to be honest, bland eyewear that's available today. Prescription eyewear should not cost you more than a plane ticket or more than a new iPhone. And so by circumventing traditional channels, working with customers directly, you can you go to their website. Now they've got some retail stores. We've got one here in the domain in Austin. It's awesome. They can give you high quality, great looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. And it is uh, vintage inspired, but it has a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom fit. They have anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. And it's like, they're great. I love these things. I've got a couple pairs and I love them. I've never been in a situation where I could afford to have more than one pair of glasses. And if it broke, great. I'm wearing the old ones from five years ago that make me, you know, get a headache. No more. Now I actually have a couple different pairs of glasses because they made them so affordable. I love that. And, uh, and so, oh, another thing that they do, uh, they are partnered with nonprofits like Vision Spring so that for every pair of glasses that they sell, a pair is distributed to somebody in need. How cool is that? Lots of people in the world who need glasses and can't get them, can't afford them. Uh, anyway, this is the way this works. Again, you're dealing with something that's like, well, how do I know if I'm going to like it? If I'm not near a Warby Parker store, what do I do? You get five pairs of glasses. They send them to you. They don't have your prescription in them. They're just like dummy lenses, but uh, they send them to you. You get them for five days, no obligation to buy at all. It ships free, a prepaid return shipping label. And uh, this is your home trons. You get to pick five of your favorite frames. You get to try these things out at home, take them around, show them, you know, put them up on, uh, on Instagram and say, hey, people, which one should I have? Whatever. Send them to your friends, let your family help you decide. That way you're going to pick uh, the perfect pair of glasses. And to do this, by the way, you've got to go to warbyparker.com slash roadwork, and then you'll get your free home try on. Glasses start at 95 bucks, including prescription lenses. And all the lenses have anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings on them. And remember that for every pair you buy, a pair is distributed to somebody in the world who, who needs a pair of glasses. And uh, they've got an app. You can go through the site. I, it's just so, it's so straightforward. It's so easy. And I've done this home try-on kit. Every time that I order a pair of glasses, I'll just do it. And there's no obligation. Uh, so go check it out. They even have a thing that like helps you find your fit. If you have an iPhone 10. It uses the iPhone X's uh, true depth camera to measure your face. And then it will come up with like like a dozen frames that are perfect just for you, just for your face. How cool is that? So go check this out. Warbyparker.com slash roadwork. Support the show and get yourself an awesome pair of glasses. You know, we're now we're in, we're in like Facebook universe where it was not that long ago. Dan, when all those people were just smugly telling us that the that this was just how it was how it was now, well, this is what we wanted. We wanted to be connected to each other, and it was theories being presented as true. and And a lot of us, a lot of people, were like, "Oh, I guess this is what we want now." And it isn't it. It's easy for us to look at Facebook and go, "Those capitalists, those bad guys." They were just, they, you know, their theory was just about making money off of us. But no, those guys thought that they were altruistic. 
maybe Zuckerberg didn't, but a lot of people in Silicon Valley present themselves as altruists. Right. And it's just the money that causes us to see them as corrupt. But there are just as many university altruists who are just as corrupt, morally culpable. But they're not looking for money. They're looking for power, you know, the power of um, of seeing their ideas implemented. And I'm not saying that pe- that it's universities that are creating these monsters. It's universities that are creating the students that become the people that are that create these monsters. Whereas, you know, I don't know if Mel Blanc even went to college. That'd be an interesting thing to look up. Did Mel <laughs> Blanc go to college? I'll look it up for you. Mel Blanc yeah. College. Yeah. Here we go. Mel Blanc went to Lincoln High School in Goose Hollow. He was born in San Francisco. That's interesting. Uh, he went to Lincoln High School in Portland. He's your neighbor. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. He had a high school education. I think that was much more common back in those days. A lot more common. Especially he if went, you went, you know, went to, uh, into the army or something right after high school, as many, many men did. Yeah. He would have been though born in 1908. So too young for world war one. Right. And probably too, too, maybe too old for World War II. No, I think he would have been fine for World War II, but let's see if he did it. He got into radio. Oh, no, he was already doing stuff in the the 30s. Like uh, he was already doing voice work in the 30s, so. Yeah, he was was already, yeah, in 30s, 36, he was already in. Yeah. Very much a working, working person. (laughs) Mel Blanc began smoking cigarettes when he was nine years old. <laughs> See, my granddad smoked when he started. <laughs> he told me he started when he was 11. Yeah. He quit. He quit when he was like 55, 60 years old and switched to like a, like a pipe and then quit uh-huh. that a number of years later. <laughs> but I remember I was talking to him about it and there was this great picture of him. And it's, you know, this is something that I used to really appreciate uh, when I was a kid is that I would look at these pictures of my grandparents and it looked like they were from a completely different planet. Like the way that they dressed and like there was these little shorts with the socks pulled all the way up and like the little, uh, little shoes, leather shoes with a little buckle going across them and his hair sort of slicked down and uh, like alfalfa, you know? And I was like, what's going on? Like, what planet was this photo taken on? Cause not like I could look at pictures of my parents when they were kids and it's like basically the same, you know what same I mean? Planet. Like it's the same planet. It's yeah. They didn't, they didn't have color TVs. Okay. Like they still had TVs. My grandfather used to tell me stories of how like they didn't have a, they wouldn't have like a, like, like, a, like a radio. They had like a, transistor radio that they made themselves and they only had like a little earphone for it. And so they would put the earphone into a jar and they would put that in the middle of the kitchen table. And as a family, they would lean over the jar together to listen to the radio. How, what year were your grandparents born? Uh, 
early, you know, same time period as uh, Mel Blanc, ni- early 19, 1905, 1908, that kind of time period. So it wouldn't have been a, it wouldn't have been a transistor radio. It would have been a crystal. Crystal, crystal radio. Right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Crystal radio. Not transistor, crystal. And uh, just so, so weird. You know, like what, what planet was that from? How are things so different? And I know that I know that my kids don't feel that way about like my mom, like when they see pictures of her young as a young woman. She's like, oh, they, like a mom. They didn't have computers back then. They're like, what did you do without computers? Like we we had typewriters, you know. <laughs> like we we you know I remember like electric typewriters the first time that I my mom had one in her office. I used to obsess over that thing. So I just had a regular little portable typewriter that you'd put the little plastic cover on and it had the little handle like a suitcase you could take it take it with you well weirdly i just bought my kid a typewriter two days ago electric or manual a manual typewriter uh like what we would have called a portable typewriter a little sort of one that you would carry with you if you were writing for the associated press and went back to your hotel and and, um, you know, needed to pound out some copy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's lightweight. <laughs> and I just think about all the hours that I spent sitting at typewriters, manual or, or electric, and just pecking out things and being amazed that they turned up on the page and being proud of the page that I had when I was done that was all typed. And... I said, why would I, why would I deprive her of that pleasure? Like you can go to any thrift store and buy a, any typewriter for a sure. dollar. You right. just walk around and it's like, oh, look at this. This is like one of these beautiful old, there's so many beautiful, like you don't have to get a selectric that's as big as a microwave. Like you can get these little cute sort of electric ones. I have one, I have type, I have a lot of typewriters. I have one that types in cursive, um, there are, you can buy or you used to be able to buy ribbons that had different colors. So you can type in green, you right. can type in red. And so I bought it for her, but she hasn't seen it yet. I put it on her desk and it's just sitting there. She just has not, she hasn't discovered it. She hasn't gone in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it's just waiting and I can't wait for her to, I mean, cause it doesn't need any explanation. I, I I'm going to need to show her how to, do a carriage return. Then I'm going to need to show her like what the shift key does. Um, and I guess, and then that what the tab key does and the space bar, but everything else, she's going to start immediately understand. Like if you push these levers down, then the letters are going to appear on the, on the paper. So I can't wait to see what she produces. You know, she's going to be like immediately, making things with it and it just seems so uh, i guess it doesn't seem crazy that i haven't thought of it before because this is she's right in the age now where it will it will make sense to her whereas a year ago i think it would have been sort of like she interacts with the piano where she sits down and throws her fingers at things and then you know gets bored at not being able to make yeah anything beautiful and sort of wanders off. But I mean, the idea that you could put a piece of paper in something and like type something out and it would look like a book. 
That was very, very appealing to me as a child. Oh, me too. Like this is like, I, I mean, anyone can write stuff, but like this, this is real. Like this is a thing. This looks, this is no different than a newspaper. I'll make my own newspaper. You know, oh, this is, I could write a book now. I just fold the paper in half. looks like a book. When we didn't have a typewriter in my house, now that I'm thinking about it. Oh yeah. A typewriter. There wasn't any reason for there to be a typewriter in our house because my mom was a computer programmer. Right. Who worked on computers that were as big as a lunchroom. That was probably punch card time period, wasn't it? Punch card and two inch tape. Right. Um, so she would bring big, huge boxes of punch cards home for me to use as art supply. <laughs> right. I was constantly making things out of punch cards, but you know, punch cards had zero value, less than zero value uh, because they were just generated in such profusion. And my dad didn't have a typewriter at home because my dad had a secretary. All right. He he could dictate. Did he have a dictaphone? He did have, he had several dictaphones. (sighs) And in fact, he had the old style of dictaphones. He had dictaphones that recorded on metal strips. Really? All the way back. Oh, that's awesome. <clears throat> to the forties. I don't know if my dad knew how to type. I never saw my dad type. In fact, I know he didn't know how to type because when he finally did get a computer, his typing was so bad. It was worse than his handwriting. So I just Googled dictaphone and I clicked I'm, images. I'm sure there are some beautiful ones. Well, you know, it's a page full of handheld digital recorders now. Oh no, really? There are a couple interspersed in there. Pictures of real dictaphones with the, you know, there's some with the, uh, the metal, but it's all just digital recording devices now, page after page after page of this, oh. with like five actual dictaphones mixed in. Uh, yeah, well, and the ones that are mixed in are these super old ones where <laughs> yeah. it's like, speak into the horn. <laughs> right, right. But like portable dictaphones, and then when um, portable dictaphones that used like, what would that have been? Eighth inch reel to reel. I don't think it was quarter inch reel to reel. Maybe, maybe. No, eighth inch reel to reel. Uh, he had quite a few of those. Like there's one down here where it has a built in microphone. It's, it says dictaphone. Mm-hmm. It's at the radio museum. It says dictaphone right on it. And it has a little handheld microphone connected by a cable to it that looks like an electric shaver. The thing is, like the thing is almost, it's like old metal, kind of almost like purple colored. The Time Master R player dictaphone. <laughs> uh, my dad definitely had one of those. But when they came out with cassettes, he had a succession of desktop cassette recorders that were, what, the size of, smaller than a briefcase, um, but chunky, you know, they had wood grain, lamp, you know, like wood. They were, they were wood. <laughs> oh, there's another dictaphone that he had that really does that. The microphone really does look like an electric shaver. But so he would sit and record himself, you know, talking about how he wanted a thing typed. Right. And then he would hand that tape over. Isn't that fantastic? Was, the idea of that, that like, like, well, I don't, I don't type, 
I like, I speak into a thing and then I give the thing to a woman and the woman will type that for me. How, how could he have learned to type? Right. Like that would have been just so like weird, hard, so yeah. difficult, so just impossible. Why would you even do it? And then we'll, we'll hire a, 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 a human being whose only job is just basically to type. Well, except anyone who ever had an executive secretary knows that what they really did was completely run everything, mm-hmm. right? Like they ran my dad. Oh, yeah. He, he had the ability to sit and dictate a letter, but, you know, he didn't have – he could, didn't know where his coat was. Right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I think it's pretty well understood now, but the reason there were so – so many of the early computer programmers were women – is that there that the initial generation of computer builders uh, thought of that as women's work? Yeah, and so I love were, that, I love that your mom did that. I just think that's the coolest thing. And so she was in there, like writing all the code that still runs <laughs> the Safeco Safeco Insurance Company, which I, I think it's Safeco has turned into some other. It has some other name now, but. I've I've talked to people just very recently who are like, oh yeah, all that code is still running, all that all that code that they wrote in the '60s is still running behind. It's emulated, but it's running behind right. all of the stuff that we do. I love that because we're doing insurance. It's a very conservative world. You do not want to mess it up, and this stuff is bulletproof and it just churns. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a what we used to call programmers, now we call developers. You know, the idea that you would write code. And that a year or two later, it would still be in use. A guy contacted me from a job that I had more than 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And, uh, and he said, you know, he said, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the guy that is working on such and such a project. I said, that thing is still there. He's like, oh yeah. He's like, it's much bigger now. And there's a lot more there. He's like, but a lot of the code that you wrote is still there. And I'm like, I'm in the process of, you know, updating it and updating it to the newer versions and, you know, adding features and everything. But he, he told me, you know, and he's like, I have so many questions. Like, (laughs) I don't know if I remember anything about that. (laughs) That was a, a live written, a lot of code since then. But like, it's weird to think that like somehow 10 years later, especially today, like that, that, I could have written something that is something like still working. Like that's just weird to me, but I love it because as software developers, as programmers, like we're making things, but they don't really exist in the world the way that like, you know, rebuilding your front porch exists in the world. Right. You know, my friend was an architect and he lived next door to me and you know, like he would sit in front of the computer all day long looking at AutoCAD. But then when things were done, like that stuff that he'd been working on now would become, in some cases, very big buildings, you know, giant hotels and resorts and other things, not just a house, but, you know, huge buildings that would be occupied by thousands of people every day for decades, hundreds of years, potentially. And I always just thought that was amazing because I would spend the same time in front of a computer doing technical work just like he did. And the only way you could ever see anything I did was by looking at a computer screen or, you know, an iPhone. And he got to go and see these, you know, then he'd go and put on a construction hat and like walk around this thing that was being built that came out of his head. 
that's just super cool. I was always a little bit jealous of that. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm living in a house that was made in 1912. Yeah. But I'm sure there are people listening to this show who live in England or right. somewhere where they're living in a house that was built in 1712. You know, but I, lo- I love things that are built to last, things that, that can last, whether it's code or, or a house or building. Well, you know? my mom wrote code in 1967 that's still running. And, and, why, and you know what? But why not? Well, my, I mean, first newer of all, doesn't it, have to mean better. It may run forever somewhere, right? Because once it's emulated, then it can just, you know, it's, they don't need to mess with it. But also writing code then was like the principles were like most things then. It was before planned obsolescence. So the idea that my mom would produce something that wasn't bulletproof would have been shameful to her you know she would never have put code into the world where they hadn't tested it and tested it and tested it for every single possible permutation of it Mm -hmm. Um, and you know when code would crash she would get up at four o'clock in the morning and wake her kids up (laughs) bundle us in blankets put us in the in the footwell of her car and drive in and schlep us into the building, lay us down under the, you know, next to the computers and sit and work on that code until she got it back up and running. Like there was no, there was no sense of, uh, beta. Like it didn't exist. Right. You, you built a thing until it was an iron box and so she, you know, part of her contempt for contemporary world is just like, they just slap it together and throw it out. And then they want the users to report their, the flaws back to them. And then they decide whether they're going to fix it or not. But they don't really care because they're just, they'll just have an update that will not really, I mean, it'll bug fix, but also just cause more problems and just, you know, eventually like brick your device She's like, all of that is just, it's an attitude more than anything. It's just an attitude. It's a, it's a relationship with the customer that is full of contempt. It's a relationship with the thing that you're building and your own work that's full of contempt. There's no pride in it. And I know that that's the same attitude that a carpenter has mm-hmm. about a building that's stapled together versus one that's built and and she feels that way about about the things that she made in computers which we think of we keep forgetting that computers have been around for a long time and that computers developed their that there were philosophies there were ethical codes there were traditions already before long before the personal computer was invented and those traditions produced the, you know, the conditions where whoever that guy is that invented the World Wide Web, uh, what was his name? The Tim Berners-Lee. Tim Berners-Lee. It produces a guy like Tim Berners-Lee who, who develops this whole system 
and then says, well, this belongs to the world. Here, I gift it to you. And I don't, it's not like I hoard a bunch of URLs. I didn't get money.com right, right. and sit on it <laughs> right. and call that a job and get rich off of it because I just got in there and got like bigboobs.com before anybody else thought to and then just park my ass on it until somebody is willing to pay for it. He's like, this belongs to the world. And that's based on a, on a philosophy of what computers were here to do that was developed by this generation of people that tried to make things that lasted. And we're living now in a, you know, and generally we're living now in a world that is populated by people that grew up watching Dora. And they're like, would you like to have a phone that works? <laughs> 